glad all of you did not go up north this weekend. We have a lot of people there, a variety of places around the state, even around the country. But I'm glad that you are here. You know, this series, uh, Up North with Jesus, has um, brought back to um, my memory the trip I got to take to Israel some 14 years ago. I had, I had this great privilege and uh, blessing to... Uh, to be able to go to Israel and actually see some of these places we've been looking at here in this series, going up north of Jesus, as we've looked in the region of Galilee. And as I went around from place to place, uh, going from the north to the south and then back to Jerusalem, um, I kept saying, it's real. It's real. It's, it's true. Wow, everything I've, you know, I've studied in the Bible everything, you know, that I've, I've grown up understanding and reading about and learning about. And even my mom, when she, you know, taught me the flannel graph stories, anybody been there? Yeah. You know, and all those things, you know, and, and it was like, it's real, it's real, it's real, you know. And being, you know, where much of Bible history occurred and walking uh, where Jesus walked, it was amazing. It was amazing, incredible. And all week when I was there for those 10 days, um, I would, I, I would go like, like, people say, your, mark, your mouth is like, all week long. We had this tour guide that was pretty phenomenal and he was, uh, he was great and uh, he knew the history of the Old Testament and the history of the New Testament. And everything, even in the bus rides, he was saying, oh, look over that range. That's what happened in the Old Testament there. That's what happened in the New Testament there. And it was just incredible experience that I got to enjoy. And, and just all week, I was like, wow, 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 wow. Um, it was an incredible trip. On that, on that trip, we started up north in Galilee. You, you fly into Tel Aviv and typically, and, 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 then, and, you, and then you go up in Caesarea and then, and work your way around, and, and then you usually come down to Golden Heights, and you, and you work your way down. And a lot of the tourists seem to go the same way. On that trip, we started up north in Galilee and visited many biblical historical sites. Uh, one of those sites was a place believed to be Peter's house. And uh, here is a picture of it. Now, the building on top is just a museum. I want you to know that, okay? Uh, it's the ruins below it, and they began... Over there, they got these tells, and and so they begin to ex- excavate the tells, and they'll find different layers of history working down through the tells, and and so this is one of those places where they they dug down, and they believe this is the place of uh, Peter's house, uh, Capernaum. Uh, you know, it was in Capernaum, a city that we're going to actually look at today and next week also. Now, Capernaum was a city that's mentioned many times in the Gospels. Uh, a lot of times in the Gospel of John. Uh, Capernaum was nor- uh, located northwest in the corner of the Sea of Galilee, and you'll kind of see that here on the map. And it was along the shoreline there of, of the Sea of Galilee, near the borders of, of, of the Old Testament scriptures of, uh, of Zebulun and Naphtali, uh, the promised land that was given by God to the Israelites, tribes as an inheritance after the Egyptian slavery. So the city was on the great highway from Damascus to Achaia and Tyre. So Capernaum was a 
it was actually a very, it was a larger city that many people passed through. And uh, it was one of the larger cities in the Galilean region and was one of the most prosperous. And it was a crowded area, probably one of the most crowded in all of uh, Israel. What's significant about Capernaum is that Jesus, before he uh, his public ministry began, he uh, left his boyhood home of Nazareth and took up residence in the city, making it kind of like his base of operations. This is where he would work from. Most likely it was because, well, Peter's home was there. And uh, he was one of the disciples that Jesus had called and uh, to be his disciples. And so this, this movement of Jesus' ministry is actually a fulfillment a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9, where it talks about out of this area will come one who will proclaim the good news. So Capernaum became kind of like a, it kind of came like a headquarters as, uh, as he and his disciples would return there after going out to other places. They would come back. And so much so that the residents of Capernaum, uh, uh, they considered it, Jesus spent so much time there, they, they considered it Jesus' home. Um, even though he was born in Bethlehem and grew up in Nazareth, they, it is said here in Mark, uh, Mark 2, uh, verse 1, it says, a few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, as a regular to come back to Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. And so what we find is that Jesus spent a lot of time in Capernaum. Now, in Capernaum and around the area on the hillsides, much of Jesus' ministry took place. It was uh, the backdrop for many of uh, Christ's miracles. Uh, for example, it was in the city's synagogue uh, that on the Sabbath, Jesus commanded a demon to leave a person uh, that, that it possessed. Uh, the miracle was so amazing uh, that it was said that what you know, the people would say, what kind of words are these? That, that, that this, this man with, uh, has authority and power uh, this man gives orders to evil spirits, and they come out. And they were just like, "Wow, incredible, incredible ministry of Jesus!" And they, they were they were taken back by his power and his authority that he demonstrated here in this city. Now, the, the city uh, was a, a place where you know many would travel through and to other areas. And here's the thing: when he performed his miracles, uh, those traveling through would. They would hear of it, or they would possibly see it, or they would even sit underneath his teaching, and, and, and the result was that they would tell of him as they traveled on to other places. And so Jesus' fame would, as a result, would spread throughout the region. It would become known. Did you hear about Jesus? Did you hear about Jesus? On one occasion, word spread that Jesus was teaching in a certain home, and, and the building was soon packed. There was People pile into this home, and it must have been a little bit larger home. And so four men carrying a paraplegic man uh, boldly wanted to Jesus to heal heal him, but they could not get close to Jesus due to the crowd, and they couldn't get him through the doorways. People were blocking, and and so the four men decided to go up on top of the house and dig their way through the roof. They would open up the roof and. And then once they opened it up large enough, they slowly lowered this man down in front of Jesus. And because of their faith and seeing their, that, Jesus immediately heals the man and says that, hey, your sins are forgiven. 
immediately he begins to teach. And he's showing them, hey, I've, I've come here not only to meet needs, but I've come here for the greatest need that you have is that to be forgiven of your sins. And it was also in Capernaum that because of the great faith of the Roman centurion, Jesus did not need to visit the man's servant but who had palsy, but he simply commanded him to be healed, and he was healed because of the man's faith. There were so many other miracles that took place in this area in Capernaum. They included the nobleman's son was healed. Peter's mother-in-law was was made well, and the synagogue ruler's daughter was brought back to life. Maybe you've seen that portrayed. She comes back to life. And what's interesting is that at least five of the original twelve apostles of Jesus, who were called to follow him, lived in Capernaum. There was James and John, there was Andrew and Peter and Matthew. So it became this place where Jesus centered his ministry. And, and, and he worked out to the rest of the region from there. Now, it is believed that just outside the city of Capernaum, that Jesus gave one of his greatest sermons, or you could say teachings, that being what is called in our Bibles the Sermon on the Mount. And that's what I want to look at today as we go in this series and visit different cities of where Jesus did his ministry. And I want to look at the teaching of Jesus, in particular, the first part of the Sermon on, on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And so I invite you to open up your Bibles to, to Matthew chapter 5. And we'll be looking at those first verses in that section. Many scholars believe that Jesus spoke this sermon over many days and and, and not just in one sitting, but regardless of how long it took to pre, uh, preach this or teach this sermon, it's become a great resource today in understanding our call as believers to live as kingdom people. Repeatedly, the writers of the gospel would, you know, they would state uh, what Jesus did and his purpose in coming. And we see this uh, in this section. In fact, in the verses just preceding chapter 5 and in chapter 4, verses 22 to 25, I want to look at those first. Uh, we see this, this coming out. And you'll read in verse 23 of chapter 4, Jesus went through out Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. That's, uh, I want you to notice that particular phrase, preaching the good news of the kingdom. And then he goes on to say, and healing every disease and sickness among the people, news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and, 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 and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Verse 25, large crowds from Galilee, the Depocalus, Jerusalem, Judea, in the region across Jordan, followed him. And they began to, crowds began to follow Jesus around. And here's the thing, as he, as he preached, uh, questions would come about the good news of the kingdom. They were looking, uh, the Israelites, the, the Jewish people, they were looking forward to, to, to the Messiah returning. And, and so Jesus began to proclaim that, that the kingdom is coming, the good, and he began to proclaim the good news of, of, of the kingdom. And, and, um, and, and, and so they would ask questions like, uh, 
know, how do we know we'll be part of the kingdom? And what do kingdom people live like? What we see happening, I think, even here, early on in, in Jesus' ministry, we see him living out what it is to make disciples. He proclaims the good news. You see that? It speaks of that. He meets their needs. There's healings, and he's ministering to their needs in, in that regard. And now we see in this passage that he teaches them. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. He says, now when we, he saw the crowds that had been following him around, he went up on a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, and then he goes on, and he moves into this, this, this sermon, that this teaching that becomes a powerful resource and understanding of, of the truths of Jesus Christ. Now, I think it's important to understand that this teaching goes on for three or four chapters here. About three chapters, in fact. And, and, and just to give you a visual of what it could have been like, I, I got this picture of where they believed the location of Jesus' ministry there. And so again, that building was built uh, in, I guess you could say, in tribute and, of, of this event that took place of, of the Sermon on the Mount. And they believe that this is a location. And I've been to this place in that regard. And when I was there, I remember walking out and looking down towards the Sea of Galilee. And I remember looking down this gentle hillside. And I tell you, your mind begins to imagine. I begin to imagine Jesus. Uh, in fact, it was like we are just kind of, the ones I was traveling with, we were being really, hey, you know, Jesus could possibly have been standing right down there. And, and speaking up the hill, and as people sat on the hillside listening to him teach, and you can see there was, it possibly could have been spread out. This was the actual location. It would have kind of worked somewhat like an amphitheater. And then he begins to teach. He begins to teach. And he begins in verses, what we have recorded in, in verses 3 to 12, teaching about the character of one who is living as a kingdom person. Now, I think it's important to understand the book of Matthew, his, his main focus is, as he, as he writes the book and, and records the history of Jesus and what took place, he wants you to understand that Jesus is king. He came to be king. And so there's a, there's a lot of kingdom phrases in throughout, throughout the book of Matthew. And so we see that. And so he begins the teaching about the character of one who's living as a kingdom person. And he goes on then after that, and you'll see in, in, as he goes on in chapter 6, the rest of chapter 5, and chapter 6, and chapter 7, he goes on then to, to give application in, in specific areas. In fact, this week, if you take your growth guide, whether you use the new version app, or, or whether you, um, you take that handout that's in the bulletin there, uh, the rest of the week, I want you to look at these, these different sections of the, of the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to look at that and just, you know, dig in a little bit. And maybe you might need to get some, some other resources out. But look at how he, he, he looks to apply these character qualities and how we as believers are called to live this out as, as kingdom, kingdom people. Now, this teaching, I think it's important to understand, is, is not about how to become a believer. This is not about, hey, if I do this, this, and that, then I, 
then I'll be saved. No, rather, uh, it's not about, it's about being a follower of Jesus. It's about how one lives when they have been changed by the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, once you come and you realize, hey, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus Christ, you admit your sin, then you, you, you then believe that Jesus died on the cross for, and paid the price for your sin, and that without Jesus Christ, you have no hope, no purpose, and then you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, then you are saved. And you're saved to a, really, a, a, to, to, a, to a, a group of people, it's called kingdom people, where Jesus Christ is king. And so this passage is, it's now about the one who's come to that place, admitted that I'm a sinner, but believed that Jesus died across and confessed in the Savior. Now this passage is going to dig this out. How do I live out this, this relationship I have with, with Jesus Christ? So let's, let's read through the passage, verses 3 through 12, and then we'll dig this out here today as we kind of work through what, what, what it is to live as kingdom people. He says in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 11 and 12, Blessed are you when, when the people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now this passage it's, it's, a, it's called the, the Beatitudes. You'll see that as a title there. And they, they really lay the foundation for the rest of Christ's teaching. Out of, this, out of these, these blessings or these attitudes, okay, comes then the teaching of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. There are attitudes or, or character qualities that come from the life of one who follows the ways of Jesus Christ. These Beatitudes in many ways, are, if you really think about it, they're out of touch with uh, the reality of the modern world that we live in, aren't they? This is not something that would be lifted up, per se, within our culture. They, they seem to be out of touch because they, they, they go against the things that the world sees as important as, as power and wealth and control, self-gratification, possessions. You know, imagine if we were to uh, go to Wall Street and ask young businessmen and women to uh, come up with a list of Beatitudes for the real world. Imagine what that list would be. Think about that with me for a moment. You know, they probably would look like this. You know, blessed are the rich and famous, for they shall have what they want, right? <laughs> or uh, blessed are the powerful, for they shall be, their will shall be done, you know, or or, or, blessed are the strong and beautiful, for they will have a lot of people following them on Facebook. You know, blessed are the well-educated, right? Uh, for they shall own the earth. 
you, you see that. You know, that would probably be the realities of our world. And what Jesus does, I think here, he emphasizes things that are the exact opposite of what the world lifts up. Right? He emphasizes meekness, humility, poverty in spirit, care and compassion. You've got to ask the question, why? Why is that? Well, here's the thing. The world has their way of looking at living as kingdom people. And it's very individualistic. The world says, I'm my own king. I'm my own queen. I'm living it my way. You get out of the way. Right? The world's way is to live as a king unto themselves or a queen unto themselves. But in the kingdom of God, folks, this is about Jesus being king. He is king. He rules and knows what's best in how the kingdom is to be lived. And what's great about our king, King Jesus, is that he sets the example himself. He came and he sets the example, continues to set the example for us to follow. So the Beatles are more than just they're more than just good principles to live by. The Beatitudes are, are a call to live as his kingdom people. And that's my, I guess, my challenge to you today. Are, 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 you, are, you, are you responding to the call to live as, as his kingdom people? When one comes to faith in Jesus Christ, it's about living as, as kingdom people where Jesus Christ is king. And we are called to reflect his character. And, and, and he says here, that... What a blessed life? That is a blessed life. Possessions are not a blessed life. A new car is not a blessed life. Uh, whatever is not a blessed life. You fill in the blank. That's not this. He's saying this. You want to know what a blessed life? This is a blessed life. Living as a kingdom, personally, Jesus Christ is king. So what are the characteristics of those who are living as kingdom people, people blessed by God. Matthew here, he brings out eight, eight characteristics. So I want to just look at them. The first one is this. First of all, it's a person who is humble. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And I think it's important to understand that this has nothing to do with poverty. Because poverty in and of itself is not good. See, to be poor in spirit is to be poor in the inward self and, and and not in the outward circumstances per se. In other words, to be poor in spirit is to know one's spiritual poverty before God. To understand who you are in relationship to God and your desperate need for God. It's living life knowing how desperate you need Jesus. In your everyday life. Without Jesus, I'm, I'm spiritually bankrupt. Without Jesus, I have no purpose. Without Jesus, I have no hope. And coming to that place, Jesus, I so desperately need you in my life. See, the opposite of a poor spirit is having a spirit that's really full of self. Um, Life is about me. The difference is that one thinks 
he or she is righteous, I'm a good person, or whatever, versus the one who acknowledges that they desperately need to stand in Jesus Christ's righteousness and anything that I do is just filthy rags. It's worthless. I need Jesus. I need Him to work His righteousness out through my life. There's a difference of being self-righteous versus being given the righteousness of Christ. The one who understands they have been given Christ's righteousness, they begin to realize, hey, without Jesus, where would I be? Without Jesus, what would my life be? Without Jesus. It's a person, a person who, who is humble and understands that in comparison to God. Secondly, it's a person, it's a person who uh, grieves sin. He says here, blessed are those who mourn. And the question here, well, we'll mourn for what? Well, if you understand the, the text, if, if this is about a mourning over sin, it's, it's to be brokenhearted. It's to understanding the price that was paid for me to be forgiven and, and for what sin causes when I choose to give into its temptation. It, 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 it's a brokenness of self that comes from knowing Christ went to the cross and realizing that it was our sins, it was our sins that put him there. And he willingly went and he paid the price. He paid our debt. You know, King David realized the importance of brokenness before God after he was confronted about his own sin with Bathsheba. And if you go, you understand that story where he had, he had Bathsheba come to his castle and, and, and he had an affair with her. And, and he was confronted with this, not only with adultery, but he was confronted about the murdering of her husband, too, to try to hide it. And as he comes in, he begins to grieve and become broken about a great sin. He writes here in Psalms 51, he says this. He realized before God, he's just gripped with the reality of his need to repent and his need to pour out his brokenness and his need to be broken before God. He says, he says this in response as he writes, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. See, David could bring every kind of sacrifice. He was a rich man. He could offer whatever. He goes, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. But he says here in verse 7, The sacrifices of God are broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. See, God will not despise a person who has, who truly has a broken spirit before him, who truly grieves their sin and looks to grieve that. You know, I, I think one of the things that hinders us in our walk with Christ is a failure to let repentance be a regular part of our walk with Jesus. I come to discover that I need that if I'm going to continue to walk in depth and relationship, I need to continue to walk and let repentance be a regular part of my walk with Jesus. And here's why. Because first of all, it's, it's, it's the pathway. It's the pathway of genuine repentance. If I'm really going to deal with the things, i gotta, I got to become broken before God. Repentance is... It's not just mentally admitting I've done wrong. It's the fruit of repentance. Ultimately, the brokenness. The brokenness in my heart. It's a change of heart which, 
it comes, I don't want that in my life. It, 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 it's, it's deciding, you know, it influences the choices you make. That's where, where, where genuine repentance has come. But also, see, brokenness is what motivates a person to act. To choose God's way rather than my own way and say, man, I gotta, I want, I want, I want to, I don't want this in my life. I don't want this sin in my life. And, and so we see that, that this is what begins to lead to a person being blessed, ultimately blessed by God. It also, this brokenness, it, it restores genuine joy in life. It restores this joy. It's out of true brokenness that the greatest joy and genuine thankfulness will See, when I know that, you know, when I become broken before God and, and then I see God rebuild me and restore me and make me new, then I, man, then that's peace. Then that's joy. And here's the thing. It's ultimately what God blesses. It's what God blesses. It comes this peace and this contentment and this confidence. You gain a confidence if you walk before God. That comes when you know you are right with God because you grieved your sin and you've seen it this year. And so I, you know, I wanted to spend a little extra time there because I think this is so powerful and this is so important. We're going to see God do you're going to see God do great things in life. It's going to come out of this understanding of the need to grieve sin in my life and how it affects not only me and my relationship with God, but also how it affects others in my life. He goes on, though, here we see the third aspect, and that is that it's a person who is kind and gentle. He says, blessed are the meek. To be meek is to have a gentleness, uh, to be considerate and self-control way about oneself. You, you have that that comes out of this now as, as God restores you. and It's a gentleness of living out the love of Christ with a, with a kindness and a, a self-discipline that results from one submitting oneself to God's ways. Peter writes of this. I think he gives a great description when he writes in 2 Peter. He writes uh, of a person who looks to grow in faith. And I think it's a great description of what it means to be a person who's kind and gentle. When he says here in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, for, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. There, there. Yes, that's a person that's, gentle, that's pursuing gentleness and, and kindness in their life. They're looking and growing in, in their life. Fourthly, it's a person who pursues God. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's, it's to have a spiritual appetite I tell you, this is something that the enemy does not want you to have. He looks to distract you from spending time in his word, spending time growing. He looks to distract you from being connected, whether it's in a life class or a small group. He looks to distract you because, see, he, he doesn't, he knows what the end result, he knows that if you become a person who pursues God, there's going to become life change in your life. And, you know, it's coming to that place where you, you want God's holiness in your life more than anything else. It, 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 it's come to that place where, it, you know, it, it, it's the only thing that brings satisfaction, more of God. And you delight to see that lived out in your life, but also in community. And, 
it's, it's having the heart of the psalmist when he writes in Psalms, Psalm 139, when he says, Search me, O God, search me, and know my heart. Test me, know my anxious ways, know my thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. So this this aspect, a person who who looks to pursue after God is one who you will see God's hand, true blessing on their life. Fifthly, it's a person who is merciful. He says, blessed are the merciful. Christ had mercy on us and saved us, didn't he? Right? Uh, so, so we are to be merciful to others. Kingdom people are compassionate towards others. Jesus promised he, that if we, if we do, he, he goes, we will receive mercy upon mercy upon mercy, constant mercy. Anybody need mercy in their life? Sixthly, it's a it's a, a person who seeks moral purity. It says, Blessed are the pure in heart. What Jesus promises here is, is a great promise is that those who are brought into his kingdom, you brought in and the Holy Spirit awakens you because you you, you come to that place and again admit that you're a sinner and you believe in your heart and you confess him as you say there's a spiritual awakening that comes. You may you go from spiritually dead to spiritually alive and and you begin to you begin to experience his grace and you see that grace transform you where you, you will look to live out holiness. And you say, Man, I want God's holiness. That's a good place to be. It's not just about external action, but it's about a heart, a real heart in the heart, because out of the heart ultimately comes what I do, what I say. So having this deeply rooted, so that, he says, you will be blessed. Seventhly, it's a person who makes peace. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. Here he's calling us uh, and not just to be peaceful persons, but to be peacemakers. I know growing up, I was the peacemaker in my family. <laughs> Seems like my brothers are always giving fights. I don't know what that is. But this is something that was a natural part, but now has a spiritual impact. And, and look to be a peacemaker. Right? God calls us to this as believers uh, to work actively for the peace in an antagonist world. We live in a world that is critical. And, and the question comes, well, how do we do this? How do we do this? Well, in the same way that we've experienced peace between ourselves and God, God himself, he's made peace. Right? He's made peace possible through the cross of Jesus Christ. He made peace. And as he, as he, as you came to faith in him, then he, he became that peacemaker in your life. And so Christian peacemaking includes witnessing of the gospel and saying, hey, there's a better way. And when Jesus Christ is in your life, he empowers you to become this fine peace in your life. Fine peace in your family. When he becomes the center of your family, all of a sudden, 
There, there is a working that takes place. When Jesus Christ and the gospel is sent to what we do as a family, there becomes peace. We're able to make peace. And so Christian may, you know, peacemaking includes this aspect of gospel, but it includes also living it out the gospel of Christ in our lives. Extending it to forgiveness to those who have wronged us in our life. And then lastly, we see here, as, as he lays this foundation for what it means to live as kingdom people, and I hope you, and I hope you get a taste, and begin to taste a little bit of what Jesus is asking, what he's calling you to, this kingdom relationship with him, where he is king, and he, he gives leadership in your life. He called it to him as he, as he taught them there on that hillside, and calls us to it in the same way. And that is, it's a person. Here's this last thing. It's a person who chooses what's right, regardless. Look what he says in verse 10. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. This last character quality is stated briefly here in verse 10. And it's, it's, it, it, in fact, it, it, it stops you a little bit. Hold on a second. Now, what are you talking about? Persecution? But then he expands on it in verses 11 and 12. And in verse 11 and 12, there's this shift in focus from a persecution in a general way that he states here in verse 10 to something that will affect Christ followers personally. You see, this matter of persecution is it's made personal. In verse 10, it's, it's a persecution, be, what's it say, because of righteousness. See that? But then it becomes persecution because of me. Referring to himself there in verse 11. That is because of our relationship with Jesus. And I tell you folks, we're seeing this more and more in our world today, aren't we? We follow after Christ. More and more, especially in our nation. Uh, it's it's, it's long gone in other nations, but it's becoming more and more. We're to follow after Christ in his ways. It's being challenged. Let me just share with you this thought here in closing about this whole aspect of persecution. The persecution Jesus is talking about, and for which believers are, he says, rejoice and be glad. It's not, here's the thing though, it's not the hostility that will come to us if we have become like a nuisance or have insulted people because they're, uh, we're trying to influence or, or been rude or crude or fanatical. This is a persecution Jesus is talking about. It's because they have become like Christ. See that? in his righteousness and are therefore being hated for righteousness' sake as Jesus was. When Jesus came into the world, he exposed evil in the world simply by being righteous. He called people out and he spoke into them and, and he pointed out. But and, and here's the thing, the world hated him for it. The religious people hated him for it. Before he came, people could get away with hypocrisy and lying and dishonesty and pride. 
Because others acted the same way. But when Jesus came, those sins were exposed for what they are. Just as light illuminates the darkness, persecution in a common is a common experience for Christians, but it's but it's it's proof that we belong to Jesus. Because as we live out his truth, if we live out these blessings here, these attitudes, the world's gonna take notice and say, hold on a second. I don't like, you know, you're making, this is making you look bad. But in reality, we're, we're saying, no, we're, we've seen a change in our heart. And so God opens their eyes. And so you'll see this reality, and it's proof. But it's also hopeful, because we know one day we'll experience the heavenly blessings that we enjoy in life. And so I want to ask you in closing this last question, this. What would happen what would happen if you lived as a kingdom person? What would happen if you made a commitment to growing each day more and more, living as a kingdom person, a, a people who are humble, a people who grieve, a people who are gentle and kind, a people who pursue God, a people who are merciful, a people who seek moral purity, a people who who make peace of people who choose what's right regardless, what would happen? What would happen in your family? If you led the way as a father and a mother, what would happen in your family if you start leading your kids? Hey, we are going to pursue to live as kingdom people. We are a kingdom people family and you would declare your home and and say, hey, we are going to be about Jesus Christ being king in this home. What would happen? If the kids started to be humble towards each other. <laughs> if they showed mercy to each other. Compassion. What would happen? They say, hey, hold on a second. What are you doing yelling at each other? What's going on here? What's, and then you begin to emphasize, no, we're kingdom people. How would, how's Jesus want us to work this out in our family? What would happen in your family? Think about that. I wonder. I wonder if that would spread. I wonder if it would, if in families and in this church there would just be, you know, we started. We made a commitment. We're going to live as kingdom people. And we just start. To, I wonder how that would change our church. That we're going to be people. People who, who seek to be merciful, people who seek more purity, people who pursue God together, people who do what, choose what's right. We, when we, we, we come alongside each other and help each other, come on, we're kingdom people, let's keep growing. What would happen if, if, if that grew up? I wonder what, I wonder what, what would happen if that, we saw that start to grow in our families and, and families then went into schools and, and kids started showing mercy to other kids in school and showing forgiveness to other people in school and, and, and saying, no, we're going to choose right. And, and, and in school, all of a sudden, you know, there's just this spreading and, and all of a sudden there's, there's a taking over grace in elementary, you know, kids. What would happen? What would happen to Come on, let's keep going. Let's continue to live it. Showing the grace of God in the midst of what happened. 